big g'day and a big thank you for coming out. Um, Stefo, if I could borrow you as well just for the telly, that would be fantastic. But uh, we just want to say a big g'day and a big wel uh, welcome to you. And just to reiterate some of the things Lockie and Steph were saying to you, hey, we got lollies up the back near our bar tables as well and some blankies up there uh, if, you're not, if you would like to stay warm uh, and just peckish on any food throughout the night too. But we are. We're really excited to have you here. Thanks for coming out and spending your Sunday night out here with us uh, at Beyond. And if you're joining us tonight... If you're joining us tonight and you've been tracking with us for the past two Sundays now, you'd know that we're in, we are in a series right now called How to Be Great. Uh, and if you've missed the last two Sundays or one of the last Sundays, that's all fine because uh, I'll be able to catch you up to speed. Here's a little Reader's Digest for you to recap what we've been looking at in this series. Because uh, in this series of How to Be Great, we've noted, we've noted that when it comes to talking about greatness, or more so when it comes to talking about the greatest of all time, the GOAT across sports fields, across the timeline of history, across public figures, speakers, innovators, creators, that we could continue to argue for days as to who the greatest is. The reason being because we all have our own approach to defining what greatness is, or more so what greatness looks like and how we measure it. We, we even said that your definition of a great life 10 years ago would have probably looked vastly different to your definition of a great life today or the great life that you'd like to have in 10 years' time. And in the people that we see as great, we could see that greatness could just be measured by the stats, uh, by the fame, by the status, by being a celebrity, yes. But for us, greatness could also be measured by a lot of things that we hope to have one day or, or hope to have soon, the amount of money that we have in our bank, that big house that we've been saving up for, climbing the work ladder, multiple degrees, achievement and accomplishment. But our big find... Our big find in part one in our first Sunday of this series was that we all can have our own definition of what a great life looks like. But the danger is, is that if you live your life with the wrong definition of greatness, well, you'll look for it in all the wrong places. That when you measure greatness simply by status or achievement or accomplishment, you'll lose out every time. You'll shortchange yourself every time when playing the game of what if and comparisons. Because when we start putting our self-worth in things that could satisfy us in the moment, but not necessarily fulfill us in the long term, we can get ourselves in a little bit of a trap. So, because we don't really have a consistent and a great definition for greatness in our world today, we decided to turn to this fella who was at the center of this movement over 2,000 years ago. We had to refer back to someone that who who was known as pretty uh, great. So we turned to this guy known as Jesus, and, and we actually looked at what greatness is meant to be defined as for his followers today. And the definition that we got in part one was this, that greatness, how are we going, clicker? There we go. That greatness is all about serving others. That greatness is all about serving others. And that's why last week, one of our other communicators, Chris, jumped up for part two and, and he told us that the platform, the platform, the launching pad from which a life of greatness begins from is this, that greatness begins with posture, not position. That greatness begins with posture, not position. We looked at the story of this fellow called David. David, who was once a shepherd boy, who then became king, who had the posture of faith, trusting in God as he stood before this huge bloke called Goliath, you might have heard this story before, with full trust in God. Despite knowing that one day he would be king, David didn't think about his low status as a shepherd boy. It wasn't about position for David. He takes on a posture of faith as a servant. He puts his hand up and he says, I'll take on this giant. It wasn't about position. And what Jesus says 
is that this is the birthplace of greatness. Greatness begins with posture, not position. And Chris's big driving application that he packaged up in a question for us from the story of David last week uh, was this challenge, this challenge to take on a posture of servanthood by asking seven people this question over the last seven days. And the question we looked at was, what can I do to help you? This was the question we were challenged to ask one person just over the space of seven days. What can I do to help you? Now, this isn't homework club, so I won't need you to share with the person next to you. You're safe there. But this question was to help us, help you develop an attitude and approach, a posture of putting others first for just the last week. And now that we're wrapping up this series, now that the series is coming to an end, I want to explore with you a question we need to ask ourselves, not just in the space of a week, but need to ask ourselves daily in the pursuit of a great life. Because we need to know what we're getting ourselves in for here. Because even though we can all say we don't want to be the greatest of all time, maybe we don't want to be the goat, if we want to be a great boss though, a great colleague, maybe that's something that interests us, a great friend, a great husband, a great wife one day, or now a great son, a great daughter, a great mother, a great father, a great mentor or role model, or a great mentor or role model that we simply didn't have when we were growing up. A great you name it. We need to understand the importance of the greatness that Jesus talks about and what stepping into the greatness requires from followers of Jesus. And that's why our big tension tonight is this question of what does greatness require of me? Now, I'm not ignoring those of you who actually push back against this whole follower, uh, follower of Jesus thing. And I want you to stay with me tonight because I want to stay with you because my aim is to offer you a differing lens on how Christians should actually live a life defined as a follower of Jesus. Because I believe what followers of Jesus learn from asking this question is not just great life change for themselves, but great life change and ultimately life change for those around them. See, we're going to find the answer to our question tonight to this tension point by actually sitting down at the dinner table with Jesus and his disciples. And this dinner that we're sitting in on is rather significant because it is the last meal, the last supper that Jesus will have before going to the cross. So the scene is set. The knives and forks are out. And, and Jesus knew, Jesus knew that this meal would be his last night. It would be uh, the last night that he would have with his disciples before being taken in by the Roman officials but this was the scene in front of him at the dinner table on the night because after following him around for three years, he sat down to eat dinner with his 12 disciples, one of which, one of which Jesus knew had betrayed him by organizing his arrest and soon-to-be crucifixion, another seated at the table which Jesus knew would, devo- would deny ever knowing him multiple times after his death. And the other 10 gathered while well, Jesus knew that they would run and hide and cower as soon as he was out of the picture. See, this is going to be the final night Jesus would be with his disciples, and Jesus is sitting with men he knew would desert him. But what makes it most ironic in this Last Supper meal is actually the conversation that took place prior, uh, the same conversation that we actually looked, like, looked at in part one of this series, where the disciples were having this chat around which one of them was the greatest. That before they actually sat down, they were having a conversation around all 12 of them, which of them was the greatest? And you have John reaching out saying, I'm John, I'm the greatest disciple, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And, and we look at Peter and Peter saying, well, I must be the greatest, so I walked on water and everyone's like, yeah, but you sank Peter, like you had some trouble there. You got Bartholomew, Bartholomew's speaking up, he's saying, what about me, surely I'm the greatest. And all the other disciples are like, Bartholomew, 
what? Are you even meant to be here? Like, what? Who's called Bartholomew? Like, people don't even know your name to even go here. Like, it's a bit of a trouble. So we've got this conversation going on with the disciples where they're all trying to one-up each other. Like we've already said, Jesus confronts them. And he says, fellas, fellas, greatness is not about you. It's not about you. It's about what you do for others. But in our close tonight, we're picking up after this talk because Jesus does something that shows us as followers of Jesus, or for those of you that are followers of Jesus, what greatness, what serving others truly requires of us. So in reading John's account of this whole ordeal, I want to help us understand our question, this tension of what does greatness require of us. Like we said, we're at the dinner table, and this is what John notes down. He says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He knew his time was starting to thin out, that there wasn't much left. This is what John writes. He said that Jesus... He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he had loved them to the very end. John writes on, it was time for supper, and Judas, Judas has been prompted, uh, had been prompted to betray Jesus. But then here comes the big hitter that we're exploring tonight. Beautiful, thank you, Clicker. Jesus knew that the Father had given, had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So in light of where he's sitting at the table in front of these 12 fellows that have been following around for the last three years, and he knew the outcome, he knew what would happen next, Jesus sits there, and he knows, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, everything, and that he had come from God and returned to God. And we need to understand just how big of a deal this really is, because for followers of Jesus, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, Son of God, creator of the universe in human flesh, knowing he had absolute authority over everything. What does that even look like? What does that even feel like? It's almost impossible to imagine. This is the Son of God. If Jesus wasn't a liar, if he wasn't a lunatic, if his claims were true, then all power is given to him. And knowing what he knew would happen, he could have snapped his fingers in that moment and removed any boundaries to his own death. He could have rewritten the whole story, let alone the whole story of the world. He could have done everything to avoid what was going to happen. He had every reason to. He had traitors and rebels and runners in the room. This was greatness in all greatness, standing among, amongst his own creation. He had all authority over everything. And what Jesus does next... What Jesus does next gives clear direction as to what true greatness requires of followers. And John writes on, he says this, he says, So, so with all that in mind, here's Jesus' next move. So Jesus got up from the table. He got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water in a basin. And then what Jesus does next is crazy. Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. He began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And just like it's common courtesy to be hospitable when people come over to your place, asking the question, can I get you a drink? Would you like a glass of water, coffee or a tea? Washing feet was common courtesy for a host to offer to their guests during the time of Jesus and the disciples. Let me have your feet washed. That's what people would ask. Now, the important thing to note is that it was not the role of the host to wash the feet of the guest. It was the role of the host to request their servant 
to wash the person's feet. Because if the host was to wash them, well, that would have been bizarre. It would have been odd. It would have been uncomfortable. It wouldn't have been right. Uh, it would have been just as weird for hosts of, of Jesus' time to see this happening as it would be for your best friends to ask to wash your feet upon walking into their home. The whole idea of asking a guest uh, to wash their feet was for the host to show them that they are significant enough to have a slave or to have a servant who could do it for them. And if you're the host, you're the host, you have no need to do such a humiliating task because you are of such significance. Now, let's look at this through the lens of the disciples, of followers of Jesus, uh, or followers of Jesus' perspective, because this is absolutely absurd. This is the Son of God, creator of the universe in human flesh, like we were saying, doing slaves' work, not in white robes, but with a towel around his waist. And the closest thing we could, we could see to something like this happening, this is literally like you running a flat tire, pulling into the driveway, and then your grandma coming out and saying, oh, I've got it, like everything's fine. You would never let that happen. You just wouldn't let it happen. The closest thing we have to anything like this would be like the queen knocking on your door saying, hello, I'm here to clean your toilet. Like, it just wouldn't be a thing that you'd accept. You'd push back against it. It would be weird. It would be odd. It would be bizarre. It would be uncomfortable. You would resist. Because this wasn't the calling of a leader. This wasn't the calling of a leader or of the greatest person in the room, of a king of kings. This wasn't the calling of a servant in the context of of the 12 disciples' time. This really was the lowest of lows of a house servant's task, to be physically lower than everyone else in the room, to be on their knees washing others' dirty feet in the realm of hospitality, getting a smorgasbord together, cooking a meal or setting the dining room table. Feet washing is a task you don't take pride in. For house servants, you could imagine how this would have more than often been a humiliating task. And the disciples would have been thinking, this isn't, this isn't right, this is not right. But Jesus washed their dirty feet. Even though the disciples are thinking, this isn't required of you. And then, then Jesus verbally sets a pretty clear requirement slash necessity for his followers. John writes on, after washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Do you understand what I was doing? You caught me, teacher and Lord, and you were right because that's what I am. John writes on, and since And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Do as I have done to you. And I'm going to be honest, I've pushed back straight away against everything happening in this context because I really don't like feet. Feet just gross me out in general. Uh, But more so, more so I find it a lot easier to not ask the question of how I can help you and how I can serve people. Specifically, my family. Uh, If you've ever been a teenager before or you have a teenager, um, you might have seen this within your home, but I was a shocker during my teen years in high school, and I say that even though they're only a couple of years ago. I'm a shocker at it now still, but I don't know if you ever had one of those sinks in your house where maybe like two plates stack up in the sink and you walk past it and you don't think much of it, but then you come back the next day and all of a sudden there's two more kind of plates in the sink with a couple of glasses and you're thinking, wow, someone should really do something about that. I lived in one of those houses where these plates would continue to stack higher and higher, and I just think, what is going on? Like, that's not on me. Someone needs to attend to that. That's somebody else's job. And I would never go and fix the problem. I'd always wait out on somebody else to do it. And only in the times when I really wanted to do it, only in the times when I really was actually going to get the big leaning tower of plates and put them in the dishwasher, 
when I would do the dishwasher, I would do it as loud as possible so my whole house could hear it, everyone in my family could hear it, so everyone would know that Riley, once again, was son of the day. I'd do it when it was most convenient to me. And you see, it's easy to choose to ignore the really simple needs around us or tell us that somebody else will be able to fulfill them. But choosing to ignore the simple needs can often set us up to operate within our own little kingdom, or at least for me, it was operating within my own little kingdom where you reign and you offer your services only as you please. And when we choose to serve ourselves, we choose to be controlled by our own self-centeredness. We see this, this me-centered approach in our workplaces that are so territorial and competitive. It becomes image-focused and protected of self. We see it in friendships and relationships where everyone's thinking me first, people around me second. If you know someone or have been someone or is someone whose family all live under the same roof, but each person seems to be living a life separate to the other within their own little space, their own little kingdom, then you would know how big the stack of dishes in the sink can get. Because when, when fathers or mothers only serve themselves, their children miss out. And when children resort to only serving themselves, they miss out on a relationship with their parents. Because ultimately, people who leverage what they have for their own benefit only build their own kingdom. Ultimately, people who leverage what they have for their own benefit don't change the world. They don't make an impact in the lives of those around them. They have a great chance at being all by themselves because they make it all about themselves. And to jump back to the text, to jump back to John's account, it's pretty simple to take this bit of text as a one-off teaching of humility. You see, Jesus didn't wash his disciples' feet to get them to be nice to each other, or so they'd feel nice about him. The greatest person in the room and world, with all his power, humbled himself and showed and told his followers with everything that you have, with all your power in what you know and have seen in your time of being with me. Jesus says, go and do as I have done for you. And in addressing this tension of what does greatness require of me, Jesus shows his followers Greatness requires you to leverage what you have for the benefit of others. <laughs> that when you pursue greatness and serve with the right heart, it's not about you. It's not me-centered. That you don't need to be seen. You don't need to be acknowledged every time or repaid every time when you serve. You don't need to take a photo so other people can see it. That greatness requires you to leverage what you have for the benefit of others. That not ignoring this, the simple needs set out in front of you, but stepping into those needs by choosing to respond to the question of what does love require of me is your next step. When it comes to this tension of what does greatness require of me, well, the Jesus model shows us greatness requires giving a part of you to benefit the lives of the people around you. That greatness requires giving a part of you to actually love on others, for others to actually experience love and when we decide to leverage what we have to serve we break the cycle of self-centeredness and for followers of Jesus you have an opportunity to show people the heart of the creator of the universe and that's why tonight as, as we start to actually wrap up this series and and, uh, and we yeah well we are tonight as we actually put this series to bed and, and close it up I, I want to give you an open invitation it's an open invitation not just the followers of jesus or people who are kind of on the in or how you'd see the in of the community here at beyond this is an open invitation to everyone because it's something we want to invite you into because i believe it will not just change your own life but the lives of those around you too and definitely the lives of those around you too 
And we're going to package uh, what this we call kind of the application section of our night into what we call here at Beyond a Four Monday. Because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to change you, if it's not going to impact you for Monday. And this week's for Monday is this. It's to sign up for something that we call Go Beyond. And Go Beyond, to give you a heads up, is, is a one-off day that we run throughout the year at different seasons of the year where we just jump out into community to show them practical love. That, to show community that we're not just about being a church that meets and sits here on a Sunday underneath the roof to do a service together, but we're actually a community that are for people. A community that actually wants to show practical love to others. And when we do our Go Beyonds, we have an amazing opportunity to cook up meals for our neighbours in the local community. For parents here at the school to actually get meals into the homes of those who might need it. At the same time, with our Go Beyond, we often get a backyard blitz team together, a squad, a team of people with lawnmowers, big leaf blowers that head out and do up people's yards for the sake of showing them practical love. We've got to go beyond coming up soon on Saturday, August 3rd. It's, a, it's on a Saturday, and it's coming up soon, and it's going to be really, really exciting. And we uh, want to extend the invitation to you to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And can I just say, as someone who's been on a couple of go-beyonds now, it really is a crazy day, and we go crazy. Uh, we cut stuff up with cutters, um, and we, like, hack stuff with, with hackers, and we, we chop stuff with choppers. And I realize I'm describing something that sounds like a crime scene here, but I assure you, it's fun. It truly is a buttload of, of haughty cultural fun. I think that's the right phrase. But it's an amazing, an amazing day to actually serve and be on team with a group of people and have an awesome opportunity to get to learn more about those around you and the stories of other people's lives within our community and outside of it too, but also to show practical love and the joy of it is you do you get to do it with others it's simple it's a few hours of really practical really simple service and the way you can go about finding out more about go beyond and signing up is actually through our website uh, which Lockie and Steph will be able to walk you through when they jump back on but you can scan one of our little QR uh, code uh, cards at the back on the connect desk or talk to one of our connection team tonight and they can set you up and show you what this looks like but the big question of, of why I think you should do it or why do we need to do it because Ultimately, church isn't meant to be about us just sitting underneath the roof of a building on a Sunday. The Go Beyond event isn't meant to be about us. It's about leveraging the hands that we have to better the lives of those who need them. It's an opportunity to be proactive and actually run towards simple needs and put your hand up and say, this one's mine. This is an opportunity to partner in community and serve. And the big picture in the midst of all of it is that greatness requires you to ask this question of what does love require of me? For followers of Jesus, this isn't a once a weekend thing. This isn't just something that happens on Saturday, August 3rd. On a Sunday or on a weekend, this is every day, leveraging what you have to benefit others. It's, it's what you've been called to do. That serving isn't just what you do, but as a follower of Jesus, a servant is who you are. Ultimately, why? Why should we do this? Why should we serve? Because it will change those around you. You want to change your relationships? Serve your friends and people closest to you. You want a better workplace? Serve those you work with. You want to see your children be passionate about living the life you desire for them? You live it out in the home. You want a better family life? Serve your son, daughter, mum, dad, or spouse. You want to change your community? Then serve your community. You want to change your relationship with God? You want to see your life change? Serve other people because when you serve others... God changes lives, and the first life he changes is yours. And I can understand the pushback, because I know it's an, un, 
uncomfortable ask of ourselves at times to give uh, what we have to others, to give our time and even money to, because we feel like and we do work hard for a lot of the things that we have. And that may be definitely true, but your life has been freely given to you. What has been gifted to you? Not just your finances from your job, not just your education, not just your family life, your home, or your opportunity to be hospitable to others, but what has been gifted to you in terms of your own uniqueness, your personalities, your strengths, your weaknesses, even with the scars of your own past, and even with your successes, with your story and life, you have an opportunity to use all of these things that make up who you are and use it to serve others. And for followers of Jesus... For followers of Jesus, this is how you can show people what a relationship with Jesus truly looks like. Serving isn't just this emotional response that happens out of convenience or when it works best for us. That For followers of Jesus, it's what we should be known for. Because if God cared about people, we should care about people. And when you leverage, when you leverage what you have to benefit others, you show others how they can leverage what they have to benefit others others when you leverage what you have to benefit others you show others how they can leverage what they have to benefit others you begin to call people to a high standard of themselves when you step up to who you are called to be and ultimately this isn't a god who is measuring his relationships with you by performance by achievement by all the good work that you do it's not a tally point game it's not about how well you serve the only accurate way to measure and understand ourselves is by who God is and by what he has done for us. This is not just a one-off teaching of humility. What we see in this account of John where Jesus sits at this dinner table with the people that he's been with over the last three years, Jesus chose a posture of slave. He chose the posture of a servant because humility is who he was. He just did it. Why? Because he had loved his disciples to the very end. Jesus knew all the authority he had from God. God has given you the free gift of a forgiven and eternal life, knowing where you are going, where you come from, knowing you are loved to the end. Because to be loved and to love is one of the greatest feelings one can feel and one of the greatest choices one can make. Jesus says, do as I have done for you, even when it's uncomfortable, even when fatigued. Greatness humbles themselves out of real love. Greatness allows one to experience real love. When the greatest greatness came into our world, he was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. He walked town to town without a home, without a place to stay. He made some headlines with his message of miracles, but he made more enemies. When the Son of God came, uh, came, he came calling lowly fishermen to be his disciples. He kneeled and he washed their filthy undeserving feet he washed the feet of the man who would betray him he was mocked as a lunatic and a liar the king of kings the greatest of all time humbled himself to the point of death even the most shameful painful kind of death he was the king of kings he could have had everyone serve him but he said i came to serve i came to be your servant no need to be repaid because he paid the ultimate sacrifice the greatest great true greatness lost his life in love for us for all of us not just christians for you for your friends for your family for your colleagues for your neighbors for the person in the car next to you at the lights for those you despise for criminals for the most evil people in our world 
true greatness lost his life in love for us. And true greatness was revealed and glorified through the gift of new life. We have an opportunity to embrace this new, freely given, great life Jesus has given to you by extending love and actually serving those around you. That as followers of Jesus, we've been called not just to serve, but be servants. That you have an opportunity to actually be the conversation that someone needs because at the end of the day, some people are only one conversation, one relationship away, one practical act of service away or one community away from seeing the face of Jesus and stepping into a relationship with him. It's how you can go about living a great life. I'd love to pray for us and we're going to jump into a time of communion. Let's pray together. God, we do. We just thank you for those you've placed in our own life. Uh, Lord, the people that we see as great, great role models, great figures, great mentors. We know that when we think about these people, that we really do have every reason to pour into others because we know what it's like to actually be poured into. Ultimately, God, we thank you that you are a creator of the universe that actually wrote his way into the story to actually meet and attend to our own needs, that, God, you care for people, that your heart breaks for other people, and because of that, as followers of Jesus, our heart should break for others too. So, God, we do. We give up the date of Saturday, August 30, as we look ahead to go beyond. But at the same time, we just pray for eyes to see and ears to listen in and just be vigilant of what's happening around us, to attend to the simple needs by asking the question of what does love require of me? What does greatness require of me in this moment? That God, by extending a hand out to others, we have an opportunity to extend to them the new life that you gave them, that we can show them what it looks like to be in true, meaningful, and authentic relationship and community with you and with others. So God, in light of it all, we pray in the moments when we feel fatigue or stress that we give it uh, that to you. Any of the burdens that we feel, we give over to you and we thank you for the joy and celebration that comes out in knowing who you are and how you define us. That it's not based off works. It's not based off our accomplishment or our abilities, Lord. But you define us as your own child and you see us as someone who is so uh, worthy of loving that you wrote yourself into the story to rewrite and give us a brand new starting point. And we thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.